0: Uh, if you can believe it or not, yes, this is the uh, last Sunday in 2020. If you can I, I, it 's hard to believe that we 're here already. <laughs> uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, just how this year has felt so odd in the sense that it 's gone by in a blink, but it 's also gone by in a slog <laughs> it's felt the same uh, it 's felt at the same time both really fast and really, really slow. <laughs> but here we are december twenty seventh the last Sunday. And uh, I think it's safe to say, I'm not going to belabor this point, (laughs) but I think it's safe to say that this year has not really gone according to anyone's plans. Um, I, I don't mean to rehash other sermons, but I remember just remember at the beginning of the year, everyone, all the all the the pastors um, around the country were doing this 2020 vision thing, and we can have 2020 vision for the 2020, and it's going to be this fantastic year. And I would best believe that many of those things <laughs> did not turn out how they wanted to. Uh, the best laid plans of mice and men, I suppose. Um, but it, this year hasn't gone according to plan, and. I don't need to rehash all the reasons why. Uh, We lived it. (laughs) We've endured it. We've uh, been through all of the events of this year. uh, And it's hard to remember that some of the things that we've experienced were in the last 12 months. And yet here we are. And each one of us perhaps knows what I mean when I say that we have all felt, each one of us, some level of pain or grief or sadness or loss. There's something that each one of us can pinpoint and we can know that this is not what I thought would happen. We've all, I think, been witnesses to uh, our lives sort of going off the rails or to life going off the rails, so to speak, or to crumbling into little pieces, to falling apart to some degree right right in front of our very eyes. It's not just because of a virus maybe, it's because of maybe the betrayal of a loved one. Or the loss of a loved one. Or the loss of a job. Or the loss of opportunities. There's many things that have come up in this life that we can pinpoint and say uh, that we have lost out on something. And I think that's sort of the universal sort of uh, commonality between everyone in this life, especially this year, is the shared experience of life going to pieces Like a vase that's accidentally knocked off a kitchen counter. When it hits the floor, it crumbles and shatters into tiny little shards. For many of us, perhaps we feel like that's us in 2020. Little shards of a life that used to be beautiful. What happens when that happens? What do you do when life seems to fall apart and it shatters? What, what hope do you have when all you have left are just little pieces of a life you used to have? When things haven't turned out how you wanted to and it seems like everything is just unraveling. Like that thread that you pull on a sweater and you keep pulling because you think it's just a loose thread. And then eventually you've unraveled your whole sleeve. Because <laughs> you started pulling that one thread. That's what this year has felt like. <laughs> Just, it keeps unraveling. You keep pulling on it, and there's more things that keep falling apart. Well, I have some good news for you, because fortunately, God's Word, the Bible that we have in front of you, or perhaps you have it opened on your phone, however you're getting your Bible this morning, it's brimming with example after example of people who have had experiences just like we have had. Who've had their lives crumble right before their very eyes. Who've been through moments when everything seems to be unraveling and falling apart. And there's no better example of this than the man that wrote more than half of the psalms, King David. He's the man who wrote the psalm that we have before us this morning, Psalm three. I think it's safe to say, if you know uh, anything about King David's life, that he was intimately aware of what it felt like to have life go to pieces. And this is especially true if you consider the backdrop to our text this morning. So we're in Psalm 3, and we've read it already. We we can hear David's words as he's talking about these people who have risen up, that are troubling him, that are giving him so much gut-wrenching grief. My Bible, though, perhaps yours does too, includes a little title or a little prefix to the text. It says, a psalm of David when he fled Absalom, his son. If you know that story, it's loaded with drama. It's loaded with more pain than I think you could ever imagine. The story is recorded for us back in 2 Samuel chapter 15 a time of great distress for King David. Which actually happened a couple chapters before 2 Samuel 15. Which is sort of the heat of this tension between he and his son Absalom. At this time, King David's kingdom is crumbling. In 2 Samuel 11 we have in, and 2 Samuel 12, we have for us recorded the story of David's sin with Bathsheba. And, of course, the even more almost grotesque cover-up in the murder of Bathsheba's former husband, Uriah. You have that scandal playing out before our very eyes as the king, who was, yes, called a man after God's own heart, commits this grievous sins, tries to hide his sins. And then, of course, we know that God plagues him and that he tells him that bloodshed will never leave his monarchy that is actually followed up in the next chapter. If you thought that, 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 that David's family life and family drama was just caught up in that moment, you are sorely mistaken. 2 Samuel 13, if you go there, you don't have to turn there this morning, but if you read it, it's a gut-wrenching story. David also had another son. His son was named Amnon. Amnon was the half-brother of one of David's daughters, whose name was Tamar. Amnon eventually in this chapter forces himself onto his half-sister, commits a grievous act, disgraces her, violates her, and then casts her off as if she means nothing to him. And so Absalom, which is Tamar's full brother, takes up revenge on Amnon, kills him in cold blood, eventually leading to Absalom's three-year exile. This is all in the course of the narrative of 2 Samuel 13 and then in 2 Samuel 14 eventually Absalom after being on the run for 3 years eventually is allowed back into the kingdom back into David's house but the tension is still there the tension is still very much unresolved between them for this murder of one of David's sons and this tension explodes in 2 Samuel 15 where it boils over into I would say outright conflict all out war Absalom isn't just a son who's annoyed by his dad's decisions. He's a son who has now taken upon himself to overthrow his dad's rule in a very real way. He's committing a coup on David's own throne. His own father's throne He conspires to take over his dad's rule. Actually, let me read some of those verses. 2 Samuel 15. Look at verse, Look at verses 10 through 12. Absalom, it says, sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went out two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, when he, while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong. For the people increase continually with Absalom. He's working his sort of magic and his charisma and all of the things that Absalom was blessed with. He turns King David's kingdom against him. It says the conspiracy was strong. Ahithophel is David's counselor, his right hand man. And even him, Absalom, gets to turn on King David. Eventually leading to David fleeing. Fleeing his own kingdom. Look at verse 13. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. They've been turned against you. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. For we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart. Lest he overtake us suddenly. And bring evil upon us. And smite the city with the edge of the sword. Needless to say. David knew what, life, what it meant to have life crumble. <laughs> From 2 Samuel 11 to now, it's been one event after another, one circumstance after another, that has caused more and more bits of his life to shatter, to fall apart, to splinter. Making him feel the effects of his sin, yes. To make him feel as if there's no hope. But listen to what it says later on in 2 Samuel 15. As David is fleeing up, notice where he goes. And David went, verse 30. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, or as we might know it, Mount of Olives. And wept as he went up. And had his head covered. And he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head. And they went up weeping as they went up. They're going up the summit of the Mount of Olives. Weeping and worshiping and praying. Crying out to God as things are falling apart. As the glass is shattering. As things are reaching a fever pitch, as we might say. And David, what is he doing? He's crying to God. Weeping as he goes up. I think, very indeed... That the words of Psalm 3 cover for us, hold for us, the very prayer that David was perhaps praying as he was walking up this mountain. And I think it's in David's cry to God that we too can learn how to approach those moments in our life when things seem to be shattering. When things seem to be falling apart and splintering. Not going according to plan. Notice with me, I want to bring out three things this morning. Three things from Psalm 3. That allow us, that help us, I would pray, to approach these moments when life is going to pieces. First of all, going back to Psalm 3 in verses 1 and 2. First of all, the first lesson, acknowledge your enemy is great. Acknowledge your enemy is great. Notice how David opens this psalm. He opens it acknowledging the very truth of his condition. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to make it sound better, more palatable. He says how it is. Listen to what he says. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. He's in deep trouble. He's in a mire of despair at this point. He is weeping as everything that God has promised to him is seemingly taken him away. Notice, if you remember, this is 2 Samuel 15. What was promised in 2 Samuel 7? The Davidic promise. The promise that was given to God, or from God to David, that there was going to come a son from David's line that would rule on the throne of Israel forever. Hasn't gone according to plan, has it? seems now he's losing that throne to his own son. He's in trouble. He's running for his life. Just think about it. Step back from the text. He's running for his life from his own son. His own son's rage and vengeful fury and pride has caused him to have such uh, viciousness for his dad that now his dad is running from him. And yet he's further demoralized as all of those who were loyal to him are turning their back on him. We notice Ahithophel and there's many others if you go through 2nd Samuel 15 where it talks about how they are turning their back and now they're pledging their allegiance to Absalom where formerly they had served King David. Talk about betrayal. Not just family, friends. Not just friends, colleagues, people he was close with, people that he had done life with, shared his life with. Now turning their back, pledging allegiance to someone else, someone who wanted David's head. You can understand then, as David here is confessing, how much it must have felt like his enemies were multiplying. They're not just popping up, they're multiplying in droves, people upon people it seems like. And the many, as it says there in verses 1 and 2, many are increased that want me gone, that are troubling me. That are rising up against me. He's basically confessing. I'm surrounded. I'm, I'm hemmed in. There's, there's no limit to those who are against me. Everyone is turning their backs on me. I have no help. And to add insult to injury. <laughs> you notice what they're taunting him with. Notice verse 2. As it says. many there be which say of my soul. There is no help for him in God. You don't don't have any help in God. He's abandoned you. He's forgotten you. Where are you now? There were many who were deceived by Absalom and his charm and his wit. They were deceived by him and had become convinced that David had lost all favor with God. That he was no longer God's man. And who could blame them? Just... Flip back a couple chapters in 2 Samuel. Who could blame them for thinking that? <laughs> David committed some grievous sins. It would be easy to then uh, think there's no help for me and God. In fact, I imagine, this is just me surmising, as David is walking up that hill, perhaps he's uh, repeating those words in his head. Uh, it's on a repeat. That phrase, there is no help for you in God. And eventually he might even feel like believing them. Might have felt really real to David in that moment. As life is going to pieces, God is no help for me. Where is he? He promised me this incredible promise that my throne will be established forever. And here I am walking away, running away from my very own life. From the very kingdom that God had promised me. Huh. Such is why he... Selahs, so to speak. Notice that word Selah it appears all throughout the Psalter. Many psalms will include it. it, is most likely sort of a musical notation for a pause, a moment to have all silence and reprieve from making worship. It was meant for us, for the worshipers, to pause, to meditate on what had just been sung or declared. And here, David pausing, thinking about the question, is there help for me in God? I've been told that he's no longer on my side, that I no longer have his favor. And here I am running for my very own life. Has God abandoned me? Has he turned his back on me? Am I helpless? Am I friendless? Is everything hopeless? I surely must have felt that way. And perhaps you can identify with these words too. Perhaps you can identify with David pausing right here as he pauses and questions, is there help for me in the God who has promised me so much? Maybe the events of this year have made it seem as though you are surrounded too. You are entirely encompassed by opposition. People who don't believe in you. People who it feels as though they don't want the best for you. They actually want the worst for you it feels like. People who you would formally call family perhaps are now turning their backs on you for one thing or another. Disorder and division and disagreements abound to make it feel as though perhaps there are many who are out to get us. And they're increasing by the day. If these words resonate with you. And sort of the the lowliness of them. Good. You're in good company. Because they are the words of the desperate. And if you feel desperate you're in good company. Because guess what? The Bible that you have in front of you is a book for the desperate. It's a book written to those who are broken. Broken. Who are grieved. Who feel as though things are unraveling. You are its target audience. (laughs) If you feel like you got it all together. (laughs) The scriptures can't really say much to you. You have to feel as though there is no help for you anywhere else. Before you are able to hear the boundless mercy and grace that the scriptures have to offer us. It readies you. Acknowledging that your enemy is great, readies you to hear the comfort that only God's word can give. And that leads me to the second point. To move on when life is going to pieces, yes, acknowledge your enemy is great. But number two, acknowledge that your God is greater. Acknowledge that your God is greater. Notice David's reply. He has had this moment of silence. This moment of pause. He has say laud. If I can say that word. Say laud about how great his enemy is. They are multiplying. They are increasing. That are rising up against me. And notice his reply. After he has had this pause. But thou. O Lord. Art a shield for me. My glory. My glory. In the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. And he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah. This, this God in dis- direct response to those who are taunting him. To those who are wanting him to believe that there was no help for him. That he had no hope. That God had left him. That God had turned a, a deaf ear to him and a blind eye to him. That God had abandoned him in his moment of most dire need. What is he reminded of? God is my shield and the lifter up of my head. In direct response to all those taunts, he is professing and boldly declaring that in fact they are absolutely wrong. God hadn't abandoned him. Actually, he hadn't he had, had just not abandoned him. He was actively caring for him. He was actively protecting him and lifting him up and seeking out his good. As it says, "But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head." David was surrounded. Yes, his enemies seemed to multiply. They were a crowd that seemed to just be increasing by the day, by the hour, and he was. But yet, even in that moment, he was surrounded by something far greater. He was surrounded, as it says, by the Lord's protection. He was his shield. That word shield is a very striking image that appears throughout the Psalms. In this particular instance, it's talking about a shield that actually is a shield that would be very difficult to wield. Because it's not just a shield that you hold in front of you. To ward off whatever that you see in front. It's a shield that encompasses your whole body. It's this all-surrounding shield that wraps around you and totally encloses itself over you to protect you. This is what God is to David. God, you are my all-surrounding shield. You are my all-encompassing protection. A protection that has no weak spots, that has no vulnerabilities. Every angle is covered. This is a God... Who yes we may be weak. We may be vulnerable. But our God is not. We may be weak. But our God is strong. We may be so small. But guess what? Our God is greater. And he's greater than anything that you could ever face. He is your shield. And your protector. The lifter up of your head. The one who exercises all of his greatness. For your good. And this is what lifts up David's heart and soul. His God was greater. And yet this God, who was so great, who was so mighty, who was so vast. Notice what it says in verse 4. He says, I cried unto this Lord with my voice, and he heard me. This God listens to him. And David's weeping, perhaps sobbing, with words that don't make much sense. Have you ever tried to talk when you're just weeping unconsolably? (laughs) You can barely speak let alone breathe. God hears that prayer. God hears that type of groaning. When we can't even make sense of the words we're trying to get out of our mouths. He hears us. The creator of everything. The one who spoke and and everything came into being. The one who is outside of all space and time. And who has existed before the foundations of the world. This one hears you. This one has his ear turned towards you. This is the God who is protecting you. This is the God whose attention you have. Have you ever thought about that? That the God who is sustaining all the worlds, the galaxies we don't even know exist, the worlds that are so far off we can barely see them, with the strongest telescope that man can manufacture, God hears your prayers. He hears you. Your groanings, your sighings, the things that you can't even control, He hears you and He always hears you because that's what this word means. Is indicative of a word that's constant. God is not a selective listener. (laughs) I've already experienced this with our own daughter. The selective listening. I was always accused of this when I was growing up in my household. That I had selective listening. (laughs) I heard the things that I wanted to hear and I was deaf to everything else I guess. (laughs) I guess it's a natural thing as kids grow up. I don't know. Maybe it will get worse. I, I, maybe. <laughs> I hope not. Knock on wood. Um, God's not like that. He doesn't have selective listening. He only listens to the things that he wants to take care of. Or the things that he's well, actually invested in, in remedying or fixing or showing us how great he is. He is always listening. His ear is always bent to the cries of those who are desperate and broken hearted and grieving. His ears are bent towards us, his children. And he is always seeking that we would be greeted with a voice that says, I am greater He's greater than anything you could face, anything you could ever imagine to face. This God is big enough and strong enough to protect you from all of these enemies that come to oppose us. All of the events that could come and seek to weaken us, to demoralize us, to devastate us. He's stronger and bigger than all of that. But yes, as it says here, he's also a God who is tender enough to lift up your head. This is the the magnitude of God which is exercised for our good. In the smallness of life, in the weakness of life, you have a God who is greater. But that leads me to the last point. Acknowledge that your enemy is great. Number two, acknowledge that your God is greater. And lastly, acknowledge that your peace is secure. Acknowledge that your peace is secure. Because notice what happens. As David is praying, he has a Selah, a moment of pause and silence as he acknowledges how incredibly great his enemy is. And then he does it again at the end of verse 4 as he acknowledges how much greater his God is. And that leads to the incredible assurance that he has in verses 5 to the end of the chapter as he is furnished with nothing short of the peace that passes all understanding how else could you explain verse 5 <laughs> notice he is in the midst of life falling to pieces unravelling all around of him and notice what it says verse 5 i laid me down and slept he sleeps at his most low point. At the, perhaps the most agonizing moment of his life. He is at rest. He is at peace. Why? Notice verse 5. I laid me down and slept. I awaked. For the Lord sustained me. His peace was secure because of who he was trusting in because of who he was going to for his support and his rest the one on whom David could lean was in recline was this one who is giving him peace was this one who is protecting him was this one who is the creator over all things the sovereign lord his sovereign shield was this one who is allowing him to have this incredible peace to sleep <laughs> In this moment of incredible turmoil. I don't know about you. But when life seems to be getting out of control. When I'm seeing things fray. One of the first things that seems to go for me at least is sleep. I just I can't sleep. Stress uh, kind of leads to many sleepless nights. Perhaps that has been your story this past year. <laughs> David's words are stunning to me. Stress perhaps... <laughs> At its fever pitch, and in the middle of it, at the middle of this intense moment of betrayal, at this tense moments of of incredible uh, dismal uh, uh, fortunes, he sleeps. He's at peace. Because he knows who his God is. He knows where his peace is found. It's not in his surroundings. It's in his Lord. His shield. His protector. His God. And guess what my friends. We can have that same peace too. Because. Your God is no different than this God. Your God is not some different entity than the one that was protecting and watching over David. It's the same Lord who has, has promised to preserve you and protect you and shield you and guard you. And there's nothing, there's nothing that you can endure that he is not aware of. There's nothing, however big, however small, that you can undergo, that you can uh, endure, that he is not intimately aware of. And there's nothing that you can experience that he is surprised by, that he's unfamiliar with. He's a God. Your all-encompassing protector who knows exactly the grief that you're feeling. We mentioned this on Christmas Eve. (laughs) And I'll reiterate it again. Yours is a God who was made in the likeness of flesh. Jesus, the incarnate God. The Word, as it says in John chapter 1, who is made flesh and dwelt among us. And why is that so important? It's because of this. We have a God who knows what it's like to feel human. All of the loss that you feel, he has felt. All of the betrayal that you feel, he has felt. All of the incredible turmoil and vexation and sadness and stress and grief, your God has felt. He's felt it to the nth degree, to levels and amounts that you have not even fathomed. He has felt you have a God who knows exactly what you are enduring. And he promises to protect you from it all. That's what makes that so powerful. You don't have a God who is in some ivory tower. Who is just yelling at you to get over it. To grin and bear it. To just brunt through it. You have a God who sits in the ashes with you. As one who has been in the ashes for you. You don't have a God who's unfamiliar with the losses that you felt. You have a God who's intimately aware of every single one of them. All of the infirmities. All of the struggles. He's endured them all. This is the peace that I think that David was feeling. A peace that uh, extends and, and goes beyond any sense of understanding. It's a peace that you and I can have. In knowing that these words are true, because they are true, they are the words of our Father. He sleeps in the midst of this turmoil, but notice verse six as it says, "I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about." He's confident. (laughs) Notice that the size of his enemies, or at least how David feels, hasn't changed. He still feels as though his enemy is is so beyond overcoming. It's so formidable. He has no chance in overcoming those who are opposed to him. And yet, what does he say? I'm not going to be afraid of them. I don't have to fear them. I don't have to be uh, turned uh, turned into trouble, uh, into intimidation by them. He is still confident. Why? Because of who his God is. A God who intervenes mightily on his behalf. Notice verse 7. Listen to this striking imagery of the type of God that you and I have. Arise, O Lord, he says. Save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheek, upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people, Selah. You know, he waits to pause there. After he is so reminded of the God that he has. A God who doesn't just declare peace. A God who comes down and establishes establishes peace himself. Who intervenes, as it says, and promises to break the teeth of his enemies. This is violent imagery. That comes at the hands of the God that we have, this, this, this God who tenderly loves us, who cares for us, who lifts up our head, isn't afraid to strike those who are opposing his children. He's your father. You best believe that he's going to protect those that he loves. We've been going through a, a, a class in Sunday school, a short commercial called "Love and Respect." <laughs> It's a great, great class regarding marriage, and not just marriage, but relationships, and how each individual in that relationship is given God-given roles. And one of the things that's almost assumed, and I'm going to make this assumption about all the, all the fellows in here this morning, is that you would die for your family. That if push came to shove, we would be the ones that would take the bullet, and we would be proud to do so. I think about that with my own family best believe that if someone is trying to harm them, I'm going to lose my life or die in, 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 the, in the cause of protecting them. You have a God who is the same. Who did lose his life. <laughs> preserving you and protecting you and bringing you out of your turmoil. A turmoil that is so great that it would have led to eternal condemnation. And yet this is a God who says salvation belongs to me. He's a God who protects you. Who surrounds you with something that, that, that we cannot even fathom. That's how strong his protection is. But I love the harmony out of verses 2 and verse 7. In verse 2, David is feeling all of these taunts and all of these jeers from these people that are surrounding him. They're snapping at him and telling him, you have no help in God. So what does God do? He breaks their teeth. He breaks their jaws. The things that they use to spout at David and demoralize him, that's the very thing that God destroys. He destroys their mouths. My friends, God has defanged your enemy. He doesn't have jowls that have venom in them. Yes, he has something that can bring us great grief oftentimes. Your enemy is defanged already. He's defeated already. God has broken his cheekbone. God has declared your adversary, the devil, so powerless that you can say to him you have no authority over me. Because salvation belongs to my God, and he's far greater than you. He's way stronger than you. The taunts that David felt they were powerless against him. Why? Because there is help for us in God. That lie that they were trying to tell him. There's no help for you. It's false. There is help for you. Because why? Your God is your only hope. Only this God can save David. Salvation belongs to him alone. And only this God can put the pieces back together. Can lift up our head when we have fallen. And and give us peace. I would be lying if I told you that there haven't been several occasions when I wish that the promises of verse 7 would come to fruition in real life. (laughs) That God would intervene in real life and come and punch my enemies in the face. (laughs) That would be great. He He hasn't done that yet. I would love it if he would though. Perhaps you can feel that too. If we could just... Pray this prayer and he would come and he would just hit that enemy person or impersonal enemy. He would just snap his fingers and everything would be gone. All of our problems would be zapped away. All of the pain that we felt. All of the loss that we felt. All of the the grief that we have endured. All of the betrayal that we've had to go through. I I would love it if God would come down. And he would strike all that on on the cheekbone. It would all go away. My friends the promises that God gives you and me. Through the power of his word. Is far more profound than just zapping our problems away. It's the peace of knowing that. No matter what problems we endure, his presence is never going to leave. No matter what, uh, no matter how fractured your life gets. Yes, perhaps you feel like that vase that's fallen off the counter and there's all these pieces. And maybe you feel like there's someone who has come along and has has put his foot on those pieces and making them smaller. There is never a moment when God is leaving you. There's never a moment when he is going to abandon you. There's never a moment when he has turned a deaf ear or a blind eye to your situation. One expositor, H.A. Ironside, he says this, which I love. With the Christian, whatever happens, if everything you have counted on goes to pieces, it does not make any difference. Because God is not going to pieces. God is there just the same, and so so the soul can rest in him. (laughs) When everything is going to pieces, God does not. When everything is falling apart, he is the solid rock that we stand on, that we boldly stand on. Whatever is causing your life to feel like it's unraveling, it does not define you. Your identity is not wrapped up in all those shattered bits that have been left over from whatever turmoil has fundamentally altered your life now. And perhaps has fundamentally altered your life in all the future days ahead. Who you are is secure in the great tender loving care of this mighty protector and shield who comes to envelop us in his protective care. It's wrapped up in this God. Who is always there? Who never leaves? Who who doesn't go to pieces even when life does? Who promises in Matthew twenty eight that I am with you always, even unto the end of the world? It's, you notice like the 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 the, the tongue in cheek sort of hyperbole in that verse, because Jesus is telling them that even when the world, if the world ends, I'm going to be there with you. The world's not going to end. Because he's not going to allow it to end. He's the one who sustains it all. He's the one who has promised to always be with you. And this is a present promise. He's not just going to be with us when the world's in. He's with us now. I am with you always. He can never not be with those who are his. You are If you believe in Jesus this morning, the one who has saved you from your sins, no matter how shattered your present reality might be, and it might be really shattered, yours is a God who is present with you right in the middle of it. He sits with you on all those shards of glass, helps you pick up the pieces. There's no circumstance where He is absent. He's right there with us. And he is always there. And he's never going to leave. This is how we approach those moments. We acknowledge that our enemy is great. And there is a formidable enemy out there. Our adversary is strong and powerful. And he's roaring like a lion. But guess what? We have a God who is even better. Who is even greater. Who as it says in the scriptures. He is the lion of Judah. Your adversary is defanged. And your lion. The lion of Judah. Who is on and protecting your behalf. Fighting for your peace. He's the one who secures it. And he says with me. It'll never leave. And neither will he. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes at this time.